Welcome to Pillar of Hope. This is the story of a small and determined international group of doctors and clinical researchers, united in the singular goal of decreasing the incidence of complications in patients with COVID-19. Their discovery involves the innovative use of a blood thinning medication called heparin, a drug common to all hospitals worldwide, readily available, easily accessible, and very affordable. Could the solution to stem the tide of this catastrophic pandemic be found within the supply cupboards of our hospitals? As infections escalate and deaths continue to mount at an alarming rate, we continue our journey of hope with Dr. Michelle Schulzberg, team leader of the Rapid COVID Coagulation Study, known to the group as the Rapid COVID Coag Study. Late spring, early summer 2020. We all want this to be over. But the hard reality is, this is not even close to being over. From her research unit at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, Michelle and her colleagues, which include the HOCRG and the ARC, who have been with her from the onset, are feverishly working to gather even more resources that will push the study forward. The beehive of activity from her immediate team members has provided Dr. Schulzberg with further inspiration and determination to find the answers. The team is now comprised of doctors from around the world. Dr. Peter Uni, Dr. Paula James, and Dr. Agnes Lee from Canada. Dr. Mary Cushman and Dr. Lisa Bauman-Kruzinger from the United States. And doctors Elnara Negri, Hassan Rahal, and Carlos Pompilo from Brazil. Word was quickly spreading about this Canadian study. The international medical community took note and the team continued to grow. Reaching eastward across the North Atlantic, Michelle connected with Irish hematologist Fanola Nilanla. I was very lucky to be introduced to Dr. Michelle Schulzberg by our joint colleague and inspiration, Dr. Saskia Middledorp. I've had the honour of collaborating with Dr. Middledorf for several years on a very important study that is aiming to find the best way to prevent blood clots in pregnant women. And again, the work that I've done with Dr. Middledorf shows how important it is that we work together as an international team. And therefore meeting Dr. Schulzberg was truly inspirational because I realized very quickly that um, Dr. Schulzberg had the ability to motivate people and to inspire them and to encourage them to work together for the benefit of our patients. I could see very quickly that her mission was to reduce death and disability due to COVID-19. And her idea was absolutely brilliant. We were working in, in the dark. We were trying to help our patients by using blood thinners to prevent them from becoming even more unwell than they already were. And yet we had no good data to help us. Dr. Schultzberg proposed that we work together as an international team to answer a very simple question. What is the best dose of a blood thinner called low molecular weight heparin to reduce the chance of a person affected with COVID-19 getting worse? And this to me as a basic scientist and as a clinician scientist was absolutely fascinating. And the reason I thought it was so interesting is that we know that heparin is not just a blood thinner. So it doesn't just act on the clotting system, but it's also been shown to have fascinating other effects 
that are positive on the body. And these include dampening down inflammation, reducing cell death, and sometimes stabilizing what we call the blood vessels or the, the lining of blood vessels that are so important in sometimes making blood clots happen in people who are very, very unwell. So for me, this idea was absolutely fascinating. Eight time zones away from Michelle's lab at St. Michael's Hospital, Dr. Musad Al-Hamza in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and his mentor, learn of the groundbreaking rapid COVID coag trial from Toronto, Canada. I'm from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, where I am right now. I uh, work as an assistant professor and a consultant vascular and endovascular surgeon at King Saud University, the largest school of medicine in the country. I did my training actually in Canada. I just returned last Christmas uh, from Toronto after spending about six and a half years training in my residency and fellowship at the University of Toronto Division of Vascular Surgery. And prior to that, I graduated from medical school here at King Saud University and spent two years in Miami at the University of Miami doing my Master's of Public Health. Technically, I've just gotten back, just starting off, and all of a sudden we've got this COVID that basically shut everybody down and uh, got us all ready and geared up for doing whatever is necessary to try to help everybody. I think it was back in, uh, I want to say in April, uh, my mentor, my good friend, Dr. Mohammed Al-Omran, who is my teacher here in Saudi Arabia, when I was first hired, when I started my residency in Toronto, he actually joined the Division of Vascular Surgery at the Michael Hospital as the chair of that division. He's a well-known expert and scientist in the field, and he's got a few areas of interest, but he's also an epidemiologist and has published widely in population-based research. I got an email from him where he said, hey, listen, there's this guy, Peter Uni and Michelle Schulzberg, who have this idea, this project. And he sent me the trial synopsis, which is basically a summary of the, of the trial information. And they're looking to uh, expand it to make it an international collaboration. And I think it would be a good opportunity for you to kind of uh, lead this, uh, at least at the hospital, at our hospital. I've known Michelle, really not personally, but I think we've had a brief encounters when we consulted her or we interacted with her regarding a few of our patients in the hospital. And uh, as soon as I, you know, we've exchanged a few emails and we had a, a Zoom meeting, of course, you know, we started working from then. Now we are two sites in Saudi Arabia and the third one is hopefully going to be activated. Still, as enthusiasm and hope continued to grow, the reality weighed heavily on the lives of the doctors, medical professionals, and first responders around the world. Perhaps the greatest motivation of all was fear. Fear for lives, jobs, and the safety of loved ones. The pressure and stress on the medical community has been and continues to be almost immeasurable complicated by the crippling emotional burden of witnessing patients' families forced to say a final goodbye. Not in person, but on a small computer monitor. There have been people and other people in the news as well of even colleagues who have needed to say goodbye to their family over the phone. And that's not something that we wish on anyone. I know that people are still tired of isolating and tired of wearing masks and tired of this pandemic being here. But we also see the potential risk and that people can get seriously ill with it. 
I, I hope that no one else gets that ill, but unfortunately, we see it every day uh, with the number of people that are infected and that unfortunately some people do get that critically ill and we are losing people in a very large number across the globe at this point in time. We have learned and definitely we have learned over these months how to better care for our patients with COVID-19 and that will hopefully let more people be home uh, and out of the hospital instead of needing to say goodbye to their family members. Initially, everybody was taken aback. As medical practitioners, we didn't expect it to be this bad very early on. But then when it started and the rate of infections are spreading so high and so fast, you know, I got really worried, especially personally, because I was here alone and my family was still in Toronto in March. In Canada, the, the airlines, the air travel was grounded or canceled for the most part right after March break. And, you know, I was talking to my wife and my kids who were there and I, you know, I said, it's probably going to be a couple weeks until everybody who comes back from March break and whoever gets infected, they get you know, recovered and then school will reopen. And uh, obviously, we know what happened afterwards. And then, you know, as the cases kind of increased rapidly, our job essentially switched from specialized people into all physicians, healthcare workers, trying the best we could to help whoever needs with whatever skills we have. You know, whether that be an ICU physician asking you to try to put a line in or whether it be somebody is trying to uh, get some sort of a test uh, or some kind of a good picture uh, that you can you can help them with or even like operating as a trainee or as a service member of the medical team. Luckily, we didn't reach that point, but we were very ready. We had a major master preparedness plan, at least locally in the hospital, that uh, you know we would get down on the grounds and be like, all of us will be frontliners because you know when COVID hit, it didn't just hit the general population, it also hit, hit the uh, healthcare professionals. And you have to get those out to safety until they recover. People are tired. You know, physicians on the front lines in hospitals uh, in the United States, I can tell you, they're tired. And while clinical trials are necessary to save lives, I think people's goodwill to really go the extra mile to participate in a clinical trial is difficult when you're under this kind of stress. There's a hospital in Wisconsin that was having COVID-positive nurses go to work because there's not enough nurses. We never would have imagined anything like that. It's so stressful right now in the United States. I could feel residents and students really stressed. And I think they were even more scared than, than I was. It always teaches me when I get the chance to observe other people's uh, life and thoughts, I keep remembering myself that not everyone is just like me. And I have to respect the time of other human beings to deal with the pain, to deal with their losses. In my 34 years as a physician, I have never seen so much suffering from a single disease over such a short period of time. Mental health experts say an entire generation of medical workers will likely suffer prolonged psychological effects from working through this pandemic. Five and a half months into 2020, COVID-19 was taking a stranglehold 
Back on January 3rd, the World Health Organization reported 44 cases. By the first day of summer, the number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 had grown to a staggering 8.7 million. Hospitals were overwhelmed. Frontline workers faced grueling days that melded together in a never-ending nightmare. The term, flatten the curve, was the daily mantra. Government officials continued to urge citizens to heed stringent guidelines, maintain social distance, wear a mask, wash hands, and stay home. You should not congregate in crowds. You should keep distance. The boundless collective energy of the team welcomed yet another member, Dr. Diego Caruso, general internist intensivist from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Dr. Caruso and his team were battling not only the virus, but a severe lack of frontline workers. More than 400 healthcare providers were infected with COVID-19, which accounted for 15% of the total cases. It would have been forgiven had Dr. Caruso thrown in the towel. But even with resources severely depleted, his unwavering commitment to finding answers never faltered. Working day and night, undeterred by lack of funding, and needing more patients to be involved in the clinical trial, the team forged ahead. The answers they were seeking weren't to be found in some miracle cure from a yet-to-be-developed drug. The answer was right in front of them, a drug called heparin. Dr. Agnes Lee, medical director of the thrombosis program at Vancouver General Hospital and professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia, describes why Michelle's study is different from the countless others and why the drug heparin became the focus. It is unique in that we are looking at a anticoagulant that has been around for over a hundred years. So unlike a lot of the other studies in COVID, looking at treatments for COVID, many of these are novel agents, new antibody inhibitors, that sort of thing. We are looking at a very old drug that has been around for over a hundred years and that has extraordinary properties that tells us that it may be highly effective. Number one, it is an anticoagulant or what we call a blood thinner. We know that clotting is a complication in patients with COVID, so that makes a lot of sense to be using an agent that will prevent and treat clotting. Second thing is this heparin anticoagulant has anti-inflammatory effects, and we know that inflammation is a big problem in patients with COVID. And finally, there's been experimental studies that have shown that heparin can interfere with how the virus attaches to our cells and gains entry into the cells and replicate themselves. So this very old agent, which is still widely used today, has tremendous different properties that could really target COVID in ways that other agents can't. This agent, because it's also old or it's globally available, it's very cheap compared to the other uh, therapies that we're looking at for COVID. So it makes it really important for us to study it properly to see if it will help us fight COVID. Heparin. It was the light bulb moment for Dr. Musa Al-Moshudi from the United Arab Emirates, as she too is delving into similar research. It was early, I think in April, when 
There is a release of a study that showed there is a clot in the autopsies of patients with COVID-19. This paper bring attention to the world that there is an option of blood thinner to treat this disease. At that time, I was also involved to put guidelines of blood thinner guidelines, anticoagulation guidelines for my hospital to treat COVID patients. Sometimes I get my also update about research and about scientific papers from uh, social media. So I was following Dr. Charles Baird. There was one tweet for her that she mentioned about rapid trial, and there is an option to for international side. So I messaged her that day, and it, it was my lucky luckiest day actually. That she she was very happy and welcoming for us to be part of the study. The number of COVID patients quickly overwhelmed their medical system. Undaunted and reflecting the mood of the entire team, Dr. Almushudi remained positive and hopeful. The spirit of the team helped us through this to go through crisis. We were laughing in the middle like uh, of a discussion. We are uh, supporting each other in the on calls. We had a great team actually. Um, I was lucky to work with my team in Helene Hospital. Um, you can create a hope from nothing. When you see also some of the patients improving, you can also get a hope. Not all of our patients uh, deteriorate. This is a, that was, that gave us a hope. And also when we went through, like in the summer, the cases was um, decreasing. And this is when the time that we got uh, a bit of a relief. Uh, this kind of things that give us hope. That there is something that we could control and we could manage. I do believe that human are now is different than years ago, of course. Like the science, the cooperation, the, in regards to everything, that I, I believe that we can pass this period. We are determined, actually, as a physician to pass it with, um, if we are united with each other, scientists, as a scientist, as a physician. Even with unwavering hope coursing through the veins of this determined team, the challenge of funding remained constant. Additional help came from an organization historically known for its commitment to be at the ready when assistance is required, the Canadian military. Dr. Andrew Beckett, Lieutenant Colonel in the Royal Canadian Medical Service, is the latest addition to the team. Holding active positions in the Canadian Armed Forces, Dr. Beckett is a trauma surgeon and critical care doctor at St. Michael's Hospital, Toronto. Sensing the urgency and the momentum that Michelle's team was gaining, he threw the support of the military behind the study. I knew uh, Michelle Schulzberg quite well from uh, previous meetings and, you know, I've always sort of represented the military interests in the terms of uh, blood products and our need for them and uh, overseas operations, so I've represented that side. So we we're in, in touch with them and so, so when the COVID-19 uh, outbreak started, is you know, I was already in contact with uh, Michelle um, and Katerina, and they came to us with an idea for the rapid trial, you know, looking uh, to see if there's a chance of collaboration with the Department of National Defense in terms of the project. And the group, in, the, in terms of D&D research, we carefully looked at that, and we thought this would be a very good trial to uh, invest in. And I think for several reasons, I think one is that on the CIHR, um, granting process is scored very high, didn't uh, quite meet the threshold, um, but it scored very high, so there was uh, some good external validation. As well, the trial was Canadian-based, so, you know, uh, having a, a large Canadian footprint for the trial was also important for looking at from, you know, military's perspective. 
And thirdly is the fact that this is, you know, something if the Canadian Forces was having to run larger deployed medical facilities, uh, that knowing what to do, whether to systemically anticoagulate somebody would be important in, in settings. And this is something we, we could do in a field hospital. As summer arrived, the world exhaled. Pressure began to ease. Government restrictions saw positive results as the incidence of infection decreased. The curve was flattening, but nobody suggested we were out of the woods. Talk of a second wave surfaced. Michelle reflects on the enormous shift COVID-19 created and looks ahead with optimism from the lessons learned. COVID has changed the way people have to relate to one another and it's created barriers, physical barriers, masks, face shields, gowns, gloves. That's hard because one of the most important tools that healthcare providers have to help make people feel better is physical touch. And so because we need to be mindful of physical distancing and because we have to switch very heavily to virtual care and the proportion of our virtual care really depends on the type of physician that you are or healthcare worker that you are. And so some of our healing capacity is hindered by that. Initially, when COVID hit Canadian hospitals, the fear was palpable because we didn't know what was coming and we didn't have all of the, the equipment that we needed. We didn't have the comfort in knowing the details that we required to treat patients effectively. So what it did is it put all physicians back in medical school. We were all learning. None of us knew how to manage this. We were all on social media, desperately trying to learn from one another. And we still are on social media, teaching one another. <laughs> and so that exchange of information, using things like social media has been incredible. But at the beginning, we really didn't know it was coming. And so people were afraid. So healthcare workers are no different than other human beings. We were afraid. We didn't know if we were gonna get sick. We didn't know if we were gonna make somebody more sick by not giving them a treatment that might be helpful or giving them a treatment that might be harmful. We didn't know when it would be appropriate to send somebody home. What are the right signals to tell somebody's well enough to go home? What are the right signals to keep somebody in hospital? These are all very basic questions and we didn't have the answers to them. Now, there's much less fear because uh, healthcare workers have a better understanding of what COVID-19 is. And in fact, the severity and death rate of COVID-19 in patients who are hospitalized, I can at least speak sort of anecdotally to our experience with the second wave, is that we're seeing less deaths, less admissions to intensive care units. We are getting better at treating patients. We don't have concern, at least I can speak for our hospital and for you know, other hospitals in the greater Toronto area, we don't have PPE concerns. Thankfully, we have enough masks, we have enough face shields, we have enough gowns, but I know that this isn't necessarily the case at other hospitals, even in our country, and certainly not worldwide. So the climate has changed, so those are the negatives. The positives are that um, COVID has been incredibly transformative in that it has pushed us all to improve the care that we provide for patients at a very fast pace. And uh, hospitals are similar to any other large institution um, in that 
it takes time to get policies through and to get through the various committees to get things approved and etc. But COVID essentially just forced us all to put our foot on the accelerator and we changed policies overnight and it has made us all a lot more creative and honestly more collaborative and it has made us band together. At least at at our hospital, there's a very strong sense of unity. The fall was approaching and with it, the likelihood of a resurgence. With the knowledge gained by the medical community, how would the second wave be managed? We are going to be looking at perhaps more than a couple of waves of this pandemic sweeping through our respective populations. Next, the Rapid COVID COAG study team presses on. More patients are needed for the trial. Was funding running out? And was the spirit of the team beginning to wane? Michelle's team that now spans seven countries weigh in and show their support to the little engine that could. This research was made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partner institutions, organizations, and grant providers, which we proudly highlight in the show notes of this podcast. Learn more about this life-saving research and how you can contribute to this ongoing trial at stmichaelsfoundation.com slash COVID Rapid Hope.